This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, supporting journalistic excellence in the digital age. Learn more about Knight Foundation at kf.org. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On April 4th, the Washington Post brought together journalists, advocates, and digital innovators to examine the state of local news and efforts to revitalize and protect it. Over 70% of Americans cite local journalism as a highly trusted source of news, but the industry remains replete with economic challenges. In this segment, three industry veterans discuss different approaches to revitalizing local news and why the fight is more important now than ever. Let's listen. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer here at The Washington Post. And let me just get underway and, and introduce my guest. Sarah Lomax-Reese is president and CEO of WURD Radio, Pennsylvania's only African-American-owned talk station in Philadelphia, right? Yes. Audrey Cooper, editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle and veteran television journalist Greta Van Susteren, who is the chief national political analyst for Gray TV and, and you don't remember this, the second person to ever put me on television. <laughs> Who's um, the first? Geraldo Rivera. <laughs> um, okay. This is going well. Yes. So no, no, this is going to be great. So you traded up. <laughs> right. no, Today, we, as you see, we have three thought leaders here in journalism with different approaches to revitalizing and protecting local news. And as a reminder to our audience here and watching live stream, you can tweet questions to us this morning using the hashtag #PostLive. So, Audrey, let me start with you. Eight years ago, the San Francisco Chronicle was in big, big trouble. It was reportedly bleeding $50 million a year at one point. Uh, you took over as editor-in-chief in 2015. Today, the, t the paper is profitable and thriving. What changed? Awesome leadership. <laughs> no, I should I, point out that, Audrey, is also, you're the first um, female editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle. Yes. Um, Put that out there. I, um, well, a lot of things changed. Uh, first of all, we have a pretty diverse company. We have a lot of companies within the Chronicle. We have two different websites, one that I oversee for our subscribers, sfchronicle.com. We also have a free, little bit buzzier entertainment website called SFGate. And more importantly, though, uh, we have a really good relationship with our subscribers, I think. Uh, we haven't cut our newsroom. We've reinvested in it. We've um, reinvested in our investigative team. And I think at the end of the day, we do a better job now than we ever have about talking about the journalism we do, why we do it, how we do it. And that transparency has really paid off for our readers. And so then this idea that people don't want to pay for news, you've, dis you've, you've dispelled that myth. Well, I mean, if more people want to pay me for news, I'm not going to turn it away. <laughs> I, you know, I think one of the things that if, if it doesn't come out in this, in this morning will be a real problem is that we might be doing well now. The Chronicle has always been a little bit different. We were losing money when everybody else was making money. Now we're on the upswing. Um, San Francisco is a little different than the rest of the country. I don't know if you all know that on the <laughs> East Coast. Um, but what I'm afraid of is not right now. It's the next recession, which is going to hit us. It's going to hit 
everybody in local journalism unless we can really get across to people that news is not free anymore. We've trained generations of Americans to think news is free, and this model is not going to work anymore. So we really need to all be together, I think, to articulate that to people. Now, Greta, at Great TV, you're doubling down on local news. Why? Well, first of all, I have a rather complicated history in cable news. I think I've, I've, I've been to all of them now. Um, because, you know, look, I'm, I, I know the importance of local news. And I had many wonderful years at cable news, but it really, for me, at least as a viewer, is I know what everyone's going to say on cable news before I turn it on. You know, you give me the topic and I know, so I'm not really getting news. And I also think because of the money issue, and I'm in broadcast, and that is free, I regret to say, that is free, um, is that I think that you can reach people. And just think about it. Um, in the 2020 race, I had, there are three great TV stations in the state of Iowa. And who do you think the candidates are going to want to talk to? The people who broadcast free throughout the state of Iowa, or do they want to talk to cable where people may not even be able to afford to have a cable? The voters, you know, the vote, all the voters in Iowa can actually watch me. And when I can reach Alaska, I can reach Hawaii through the whole great network. Now, I do have an answer for you on the free thing, though, if I may. Sure, go right ahead. I still don't understand, because I think local news is so important. You learn about your factories, you learn about the school, you learn about student board, everything at the, at the local level. Well, I think that the news industry should do much like Major League Baseball and go to Capitol Hill and get, um, get an exemption from the antitrust uh, uh, collusion and figure out a way so that you can have, you know, so that you have people paying for news. But, you know, you don't want to, the San Francisco Chronicle can't charge people if the Washington Post is not going to because people are going to go to the Washington Post. But even on the local level, too, is if you just figure out, you know, you know, because news is so important, is get around, is be allowed to collude on pricing, reasonable pricing, so that you, you know, so that people will pay for news. Sarah, at WURD, you innovated by expanding uh, original programming, doing more community events, growing the digital platform for your station. Can you talk to us about the ways that you've innovated the company in the last ten years? Sure. Um, I, my father purchased uh, WRG in 2003, and I took over in 2010, so it's been about almost 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it, I inherited a, a station that was uh, an AM independent station that, um, you know, was, was underperforming, basically. Um, it, was, it was not um, self-sustaining at all. And so I really looked at it and figured out, tried to think about how could we reimagine what um, talk radio, black talk radio, could look like in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is about 45% African-American. Um, it's uh, the, the poorest big city in the country and um, has a very high um, poverty rate. And so there are a lot of opportunities for creating connections and, and information connections. So we really looked at how we could take a very multimedia approach. And uh, we do a lot of events. We do over 100 events. Um, a year, we uh, expanded to the FM dial, so we now are on. We broadcast on AM and FM uh, starting in 2017. We um, do a lot of partnerships, so we look at where our listeners are, and we partner with those organizations or institutions that serve our listeners. So we do a lot of partnerships with a supermarket that serves uh, black communities in Philadelphia. So we do in-store in and, and lots of uh, innovative things. We partner with other media. We partner with cultural institutions. But, you know, in, as a small, independent-owned company in a major market where there's lots of competition, it's like, you know, innovate or die. You know, you, mm -hmm. you either figure out how you recreate yourself or you, um, or you go 
out of business. And so that's, um, we just launched a, a collaborative with two other African-American-owned radio stations, WVON in Chicago and KJLH in L.A., as a way to see how we can, as independently-owned black stations, create uh, some, some support for each other, whether it's shared content or, or uh, advertising or different ways to reimagine the, the business model as well, because um, all of us are struggling with the same, the same issues. How do we diversify our audiences? How do we um, just you know, create sustainable business models? Well, Sarah, let me uh, pick up on something that you said. As you were talking about how you're doing lots of events and partnerships and sp sponsorships, um, doing these events, I can imagine, you know, takes time. And it takes time to get these things to catch on. And I'm just wondering, how much patience does it require um, to innovate hmm. in a world where people want, uh, business people, I imagine, want results and answers immediately? But it sounds to me like all the things that you're doing do require a long lead time before you see any success. Or am I getting this wrong? Uh, I think, I mean... I think it's both end because you you do need patience because all of this stuff takes time to to gain traction but you know there's there's this this concept of test and learn and so you know we we test a lot you know so I, I'm a little bit of like a cat on a hot tin roof I'm like always trying to figure <laughs> stuff out because you know in in reality um, small businesses like ours don't have a long lead time you know right. we are fighting tooth and nail <clears throat> every day to make sure that we have another day to, to fight. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's, it's trying to plan for the future, but also realizing that there's an urgency around um, figuring stuff out in the here and now. Mm -hmm. Greta, you mentioned before, you've worked at all of them, all of the cable, cable networks, and you've, called, you've, you've hit them on their lack of diversity in, in their ranks. How would supporting local news help diversity? Well, your mind? I mean, I think cable's in real trouble. I mean, I, you know, because of the fact that it's, it's expensive, but I think that the American people are getting pretty dissatisfied because they are not particularly enterprising. They're not a wonderful time. There are a lot of great people there. I don't mean to demean it, but they're not particularly enterprising. You know where they get their stories? They read, like, the San Francisco Chronicle, and they say, <laughs> oh, look, the San Francisco Chronicle, and then they call up and do that. I mean, so, so you know, the money, you know, I feel sorry for the news, the print part of this because, uh, you know, they, they provide a service to at least a cable, I don't know, you know, about broadcast in general, um, but I, I think that the, I think the problem is is that cable is in trouble because they're not enterprising enough. But but local is is much more enterprising, and that's what I mean. That's what's under threat. You know, that's what's in a, is horribly under threat. And I think cable eventually will sort of fade away as people don't want to pay for it, and as more people drop off and pay for it, there's going to be less advertising dollars, so they're much more in trouble. But the question is, how do you shore up local news? How do you make people realize that local news is so important? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm thinking in terms of local news uh, uh, helping diversity in that you get a pool of talent. It's like a diversity farm team of, that then could come up employees or diversity of topics? Which? Are you talking about diversity employees? Yes. How do you get them? Well, the news organizations hire them, and they give, you know, make sure they get the stories. They make sure that they're enterprising and get the stories, and they become well-known, and their bylines. They give them good editors like they give good editors to everybody else, and they make sure their stories are fact-checked and edited um, correctly. So, I mean, I mean it's, it, it comes from the ground up. I mean, it's management that does that, I assume. Audrey? Yeah, I mean, we, we have, I would guess, 
at one point we had probably more Muslim American reporters than any other newsroom. And because of that, we did stories on the Muslim community that we would have never gotten any other way. And, you know, the <clears throat> transgender community and the black community in town and, and these issues are so inextricably linked to everything that's happening in the Bay Area and San Francisco that to not have people reporting um, on their community and to not have people see themselves reflected in bylines is is irresponsible. It's crappy journalism, too. But doesn't that start, I mean, I assume that, uh, that not to pick on management, but management makes those decisions pretty much on what stories are covered and who gets sent where and who gets hired, right? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And, and we, have a, we have a problem in this country where most leadership uh, is white and male. I mean, that's just, and, and you tend to hire people who look like you. It's just a fact. So it takes yeah, a lot of in. effort. <laughs> All right, Sarah, you've written and talked about diversity yeah. in, in the media. Have at it. Yeah, so, you know, I, um, I have a lot of, of issues with, with this, um, this question around diversifying newsrooms. Um, you know, 1968, the Kerner Commission report came out and identified that part of the, the challenge and the reason that the country was so racially stratified was because the media was not reflective of the of the country. 50 years later, now 51 years later, the newsrooms are still not diversified and are still not reflective of the communities. I as a as an owner operator, I really struggle with this notion that we have to we do have to diversify newsrooms, but we also have to diversify ownership. I really believe that ownership matters. And um, there's a certain kind of agency and independence that comes with ownership. And that's never part of the diversity conversation. And I think that, that it needs to be because, again, 50 years we've been struggling with how do we have full representation of the, the diversity that's reflected in our communities, which is becoming more and more diverse. But you know the the problem with that, at least in the electronic area and TV, is that there are these huge conglomerates that are gobbling yeah. up all these things. It's I mean, you know, the small businesses really get hurt. You know, the small journalism organizations they're disappearing as you know AT and T buys CNN or somebody else. I mean, you know, that's a whole other issue about how you know the money. And of course, then then when the the big news organizations they are publicly held corporations with fiduciary duties to their shareholders and they worry about their quarterly reports. So what do you do? Do you keep all your reporters in a studio to talk about President Trump's tweet, or do you send them out to the community to talk about a, a factory that's going under? Well, you keep them here, it's cheap, so that you're not spending the money, so your shareholders are happy, but your content really isn't consistent with what your obligation is, and frankly, an obligation that's set forth in the Constitution about the free press. So, I mean, I mean there are a lot of complicated issues, and it's Absolutely. around money. Yes. Go ahead, if you want to respond, Matt. Well, I, 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 think that, I think that, and I, I know that there are going to be some additional conversations later today about kind of regulations and legal and, and policy that can be enacted to um, create a, a more level playing field. But I think that, that there are policies that were enacted that created the, 
the kind of, you know, corporatization of media that we see now. You know, the 1996 Telecommunications Act under President Clinton was really transformed the radio industry in, in very detrimental ways for independent um, operators. So I think that there's a policy role. I think that, that, that there's, um, there's a role for the nonprofit world. I think that um, all of these things need to be looked at very carefully in terms of how do you empower and, and really make sure, however you do it, that diverse voices are a part of the mix. And, and, and be, if they have money at the local level, that will have a better opportunity than if, if you squeeze them out. And that we go back to almost like, how, how do we make sure that the local level is making money so that it can, it can thrive, it can be diverse or be whatever? Yeah. Well, we, we have members of Congress who might be here right now or probably watching. Sarah, if you had an opportunity to give them an idea of what to do to diversify ownership, what would you tell them? Is there something you have in mind that they could do? I mean, and, and I'm not sure, like, the, the specific mechanisms for this, but the, the bottom line is access to capital has always been the barrier for um, ownership and, and growth and expansion. And so to the extent that there are... Um, whether it's tax credits or if there are ways to create a much more, um, a, a better environment to either invest or to fund or to support um, these kinds of organizations, I think that that would be, that would be um, one, one mm -hmm. direction. We have a, a question uh, from Twitter from Corey who asks, uh, local news is especially important in rural areas like my home in Tennessee. Those outlets are typically run by an older generation. How can we get younger people more involved in local news and their perspective on issues? Who wants to take that? Keyboard, Twitter, uh, local news, everything. I mean, uh, you know, they'll, they'll have to step up a little bit themselves, you know, and, and make the jobs available. You're never, you're never going to get, you're never going to get a, a cable to do cable service in there because it's too expensive to do it. So, I mean, not that cable is going to necessarily give it to you, but the, get, get Wi-Fi into these areas so that they can, they can engage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, we're, we're actually working intentionally to reach out to a younger demographic now, um, the 18 to 35-year-old demographic. And I think, one, you have, to, you have to have intentionality around it. And you also have to engage them and find out what's of interest to them. What do they want to know about? What do they, um, what, what, and, and have them meet them in the platforms that they operate in social media and things like that, and, you know, engage them around creating content that you will then um, amplify. Mm -hmm. So I think user-generated mm -hmm. content and, um, you know, just making sure that their issues, their concerns, their values are reflected in, through their lens. And I think that you really have to engage them in authentic ways in order to, to connect with them mm -hmm. authentically. Audrey, as we all know, news, trust in news is at an all-time low. But apparently the good news is that local outlets are named as the most trusted source uh, of news for Americans. And I would actually like all of you to chime in on this. How do you feel about the current state of media? in the United States. Oh, gosh, we Simple don't have enough time for that. Um, well, I think um, with, with all due respect to my colleague. Uh oh, I'm getting a hand. There we go. But I think when people think of media, that's like a huge, that's a big thing. Right. And what I do is really different even from what you do here at the Post. And we're like printing a newspaper and doing a website thing. And I think um, cable news deserves a lot of the credit for this because the 
the the discourse has become more about the content of the questions than the answers that you're getting. Um, you know, the question presupposes an answer a lot of the times, I think. And we are on the ground and we're talking to a local community and hopefully innovating and doing things that are what our audience wants to know about. So I, I think, you know, media in general is kind of a big question. My concern right now, I've gotten five emails in the last 24 hours from people who said, you know, I can't log into your app. If the Washington Post can get it together, why can't you? And, <laughs> or the New York Times. And, you know, we have done such a poor job of explaining the, the news organizations that are really thriving are the ones that have national scale because you can get people and advertisers from the entire country. I have eight million people and some of them are kids that I'm looking to get. So it's a completely different you know, scale model. You know what's interesting though is that, um, uh, first of all, I think there's gonna be greater, dis greater discontent with the national. I mean, it, it, it appears that national media has, can oftentimes be an echo chamber. When, uh, when uh, Governor Romney chose uh, Speaker Ryan, not then Speaker Ryan as running mate, I can't tell you how many national news organizations described it as a bold choice. And I thought, what are the odds? Everyone comes up with the same word. You're like, what are the odds? <laughs> you know, and what's different about local, and this is true even of a national newspaper like the San Francisco Chronicles, you live where you're reporting. And that makes a big difference because naturally, like if you know if you're gonna if you're in Iowa, then with 2020 I've got my attention on Iowa, is who are you going to think understands Iowa better? The local gray anchor or correspondent? or someone who sort of parachutes in from a national news organization for two hours and leaves. So naturally, you're going to trust, like, the local person understands the issues for San Francisco Chronicle, you know, understands San Francisco, and also they do national and international, but at least they sort of live in the area. And I think that makes a big difference on the trust. Mm -hmm. Sarah? Hmm. I think that um, there's so much coming at us all the time on so many different fronts. You know, you've got social media, you've got 24-hour news um, channels, you've got podcasts, you've got, you know, um, terrestrial radio, you've got, like, the, the, the mix is just overwhelming. And I think that, um, you know, the, the, the media, uh, you know, I guess fortunately or unfortunately, you have to kind of exist in all of these spaces now to be, to be relevant. Um, but I think that one of the things that, that um, is, is an important aspect is the human connection. And I think that's what's unique about the local, um, the local media uh, landscape is that you can, you can not just talk about an issue, but you can engage with people and provide them and connect them with information and resources and something that's actionable that can really impact and change their lives. And so to me, that's really what what is exciting about the media from my standpoint is how can we use all of these platforms, whatever we're doing, to really affect change and really empower people. And, and I think that the media is, at its best, that's what it does. Mm -hmm. At its worst, it confuses and distracts and, but, and, but, and but, pisses people off. <laughs> but the trust factor, knowing the people, helps so much that they live in the community. I, I'm from Appleton, Wisconsin, a small community. I've had uh, lunch with a friend of mine about a couple years ago, and when we were leaving, I said, you need a ride? He said, you drive your own car? <laughs> and I said, well, what do you think I did? You know, I don't think that in the national media, people realize we go to the grocery store. 
Um, we go the dry cleaners. And I think that we're, there's such a disconnect. So why would you trust somebody who seems to have a different life than your own? And I think that's what the beauty of is, is when you live in your community that you report about. And that's why I think Loco is trusted so much is because it seems like it could be your next door neighbor. Um, in the three minutes that we have left, Audrey, I have to ask you this question. Um, since you are in the Bay Area, so she's smiling, smiling. She, knows, she knows where I'm going. Um, you're in Silicon Valley, and so many of the tech companies that are Facebook, Google, Apple, they've all attempted to launch news partnerships. Um, and these are the same tech companies that have helped create the news deserts that we, we're going to be talking about uh, today. And they're grabbing all the advertising dollars and, and they're placing content without paying for it inside their own platform. So what do you think about Mark Zuckerberg just saying recently that Facebook may pay for content? Uh, well, OK. Uh, I mean, <laughs> as long as he I, pays the Chronicle, right? <laughs> I, you know, I, I've been, um, I, there, are a, there are a lot of great people who work at Facebook, and they are our readers and my neighbors. Um, Mark Zuckerberg is my neighbor. Um, like next door neighbor? Well, like pretty close, like okay. a couple blocks away. We like stroller bump at Dolores Park. Um, and I've been extremely critical of uh, Facebook and how they've handled news. Um, they've, you know, our Facebook referrals last year dropped by 80%. Uh, when they decided that news makes you cranky and they didn't want that on their news feed anymore. It's starting to go back up. Um, and I just think what Facebook has done is changed how people consume news. And so if they, if they want to pay us, fine. But what I would really appreciate is, is um, stopping the, what I think is disingenuous um, appreciation of local news, really, from Facebook, because they trained people to use their product because people were opting in to get my news. That's how they wanted to receive it, because it was convenient. And then to throw up our arms and say, well, this is, this is hard. Gosh, Russians. Uh, gosh, you know, white supremacists is, I think, intellectually lazy and has done more to hurt this country than probably anything else in media over the last generation. The last question, the last question is for all of you in the minute and 12 seconds that we have left. So I'll start with you, Sarah. What makes you all hopeful about the future of local news? Sarah. I think the ability to um, directly impact people in, in a, a profound and um, consistent, um, sustainable way that can really change and, and benefit people's lives. I would say, I tell our newsroom, our job is to earn new readers and save the world. And I am not going to be the last editor of the San Francisco Chronicle. I can damn near guarantee that. And it's incumbent for us to, all in the industry to do a better job evangelizing what we do and how we save the world every day. And, and I appreciate Washington Post, Knight Foundation, putting attention on it. I think it takes, it takes attention to have things get better. Sarah Lomax, Reese, Audrey Cooper, Greta Van Susteren, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. And please stay tuned for the next part of our program. We're going to walk off, and I'm going to come back with two members of Congress. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.